welcome to Cannon Fodder, a behind-the-scenes look at the Glass Cannon Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Cannon Fodder. My name is Joe O'Brien. There is no Troy, only Jewel. <laughs> There almost was no Troy. We almost literally murdered you. Yeah. Yeah. I brought the heat. I might still do it on air today. <laughs> the fans demand it. The night is young. They yeah. do, they it's demand. actually 9.30 in the morning on a Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> it is a nice, bright, and early record for us on this Cannon Fodder, so I think our energy is going to be up. Yeah. And uh, we're looking forward to, I mean, we have a lot to cover, so it's good that our energy is up. I've had my coffee, and I'm still in my pajamas. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> It's like Christmas morning cannon fodder. <laughs> it is truly going to be an absolutely packed episode because mm-hmm. we took a week off, basically, doing yeah. Gen Con debrief. And now we're looking at recapping bits of 117, mm. all of 118. Mm. We have a we have contest <laughs> uh, uh, results to announce yep. for the latest cannon fodder convoluted contest the, <laughs> for the advanced, the pocket advanced players guide with the CFCC. natural attack. The CFCC uh, with the natural attack debate. We also have Listener Mail is back, obviously. Are we going to do two Listener Mails? We are going to do two Listener Mails today. And so, yeah, lots to do. So let's get down to brass. How much does it cost to download this show? (laughs) Are we just giving this away? We're just giving it away for free. That is insane. We must be crazy. Uh, (laughs) So starting off, we have to kind of touch back two weeks ago. I want you to go back in time with me, Troy. Before Gen Con, mm-hmm. we recorded episode 117. <laughs> I was just thinking that like our timeline in life now should be BGC and AGC. <laughs> this is all BGC. Yes, yes, this is BGC. <laughs> if you remember your state of mind during that time, which is vastly different now. Yes. No, we are now, uh, we're going to look back at that episode, okay. which and I just want to point out two specific things, and it sounds ridiculously selfish because they're both Sir Will related, but I think that they bring up interesting ideas for uh, for mechanics and uh, and how you choose to, to do things, and not just mechanics, but story as well. So the first one is total defense. Right. This comes into play in a big way in this episode as Sir Will, knowing he's not going to do any damage underwater, uh, and knowing that they're he's kind of outnumbered, he just goes into total defense in the first round, but then it becomes very clear that I can sort of handle this. So my question for you is, when you, as a GM, are coming up against a PC that goes into total defense, and yeah, sure, you attack and you miss, but then you're looking and you realize you have to roll a natural 19 or a natural 20 to hit, at what point do you, are you metagaming to not attack them versus using good story to not attack them? Or do you just keep attacking them? Right, well, I... What I like to do, and this is what I've learned to do over time, is I look at the intelligence of the creature, and I see, well, that's a good I basically decide, based on that intelligence number, how many times I'm going to try this. You know and what and I mean? what is there a bar there? No, I mean, because usually there's not a lot of gray area, like something has an intelligence of three or ten and oh, above, you know what right. I mean? So three and below, I can't remember what the marrows were off the top of my head, but uh, I don't think they were super high. So I was like, I'm going to try this a couple more times, and then I'm going to get around. But you were also putting yourself in a position that made it very hard, even with what little space you take up, to get around you to get to the other right. characters. So my counter question to you actually is, this is a, this is, and I think this is a good question. I'm going to put you on the spot. 
a move like that is pretty boring when you keep doing it over, I think. <laughs> you know, you total defense, total defense, Thanks, total pal. defense. But at the same time, super, super effective. How do you reconcile doing something that is, quote, unquote, boring, but <laughs> super effective? Like, when do you want to try something else, even though you know what you're doing's working? That is the backhand compliment of questions. <laughs> Uh, you were really great at that terrible thing. You did. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm I'm sorry that I bored you, and and I do understand that for a show, it seems pretty boring. But I, I have to say, to be perfectly honest, that it is not boring for me in the least. Mm-hmm. I, well, and this sort of evolved from Jade Regent. So this goes back to Jade Regent, where you know, yeah, I first started utilizing total defense and building a true tank character. Well, with Sir Will, and especially in this situation, I got to be honest, I find it to be really fun. And I think it's a really underrated thing to do as a player in terms of fun. Because while you're standing there and not dealing a lot of damage, yes, damage is fun. Damage is always fun. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of players out there that are just want to do damage for fun. But once in a while, give yourself the option to... What total total defense does is it puts you in kind of the GM position mm-hmm. for a little bit where the GM is struggling to work to hit you and you don't have to roll any die. Maybe that's why I like it. Yeah. Because I don't have to roll <laughs> any die. I have a fixed number that you have to hit. And while I stand there and make you do the work, your frustration at not hitting me invigorates me as a player the same way it invigorates me as a GM when the players can't hit my monster. Yeah. And they get all freaked out and scared and, and make, you know, rash decisions. Well, a lot of it has to do, too, with how you describe it. Like, if it comes to you and you're like, total defense, and I just move to the next person, then it's going to get real boring. But the way you can describe it, like, all right, Sir Will's just going to lock down. Yeah, he's, he's holding sees his these spear guys up. He's out. deflecting blows. He's using hand-to-hand uh, combat training to deflect blows this way and that Boom way. Boom off the shield. Boom <laughs> off the arm. You know, that helps make something that could seem repetitive. Uh, you know, it breathes life into it. Yeah. Um, now, and it's up to me, too. Is like, I can't metagame and be like, well, I know I can't hit him. Let's move on because I want to reward you for doing something effective. That's why I have to give the Marrows a few rounds of trying to figure out why they can't get at this guy before they're like, all right, that's a lost cause. Let's move on. I can't just change my methods because you're being super effective. Yeah, well, and that's where I think that that is the spirit of the question that I asked you is is when do you decide and what do you use to decide it? Because you don't want to do it based on just your personal knowledge because the concept of the tank in general, the true tank, is not somebody that just stands in the front line. It's somebody that stands in the front line and also can soak up a lot of damage and be missed a lot. And that is what Sir Will is. I mean, he's got a good charge build. But other than that, he has an 18 con. You know what I mean? And with the belt, it's even higher. So there is this element of he was built that way. But in video games... When you build a tank that way, you're building against pure mathematics. Yeah. Pure mathematics is going to say the aggro of a given creature is going to attack you because you're in this position. But it's harder to tank in Pathfinder because you're playing against a human opponent. You're playing against a mind that knows all that's happening here and understands fully that if they keep attacking you, their chances to hit are much lower and they can just go around you. Right. So that using your mind as a GM to see that, but still attack that creature for good, uh, you know, mechanical reasons based on intelligence or maybe even a die roll. You could do a perception check maybe, mm-hmm. or you could even roll a D100, you know, in front of the player and be like, if it's over this, he's going to move on. I think those are all good ways yeah. to, to justify either staying on target or moving around. Because I got to say, it also doesn't feel necessarily that great to me 
when obviously it's fun, but it also can feel like you're over you're being too nice which i know sounds so weird coming off of 118 but this is a combined episode <laughs> to me it felt like yeah. you it was a little too long you kept attacking sir will mm-hmm. i was like i think that they would get it at this point but you have your reasons you know and yeah. it could be a variety of things and that was the the basis for my question yeah i mean if you're fighting something like a sorcerer with a 24 intelligence sure within the next round it knows all right that thing doesn't take any fire damage. Right. I'm going after this guy now. Um, but, you know, you've gotten shit before, too, about Will riding around the bat- battlefield, but also super effective. Like, this is what makes a party work is when people play their roles well. You should always try to expand beyond what your role is. If you're the squishy caster, if you're the glass cannon, if you're the tank, you always want to try and stretch the boundaries. But when it comes down to brass tacks, do what you do well. Right. You know, and that's what you did. And I think because of that, you kept the party alive. Yeah, and that's the other fun part about being a tank, is being in a position to see all of your allies doing great stuff around you while you're taking the attention away from them, which is the reason for feats like antagonize and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know if that would fit in Sir Will's build, just because he, I don't think he really has the intimidate to pull that off. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's intimidate-based. But either way, anything that you can do to like force creatures to attack you when you're a tank is, is a fun thing to do. But anyway, I just wanted to mention mechanically, if anybody's interested... In trying it out, one of the main things that you do in a tank build, I have found, is pick a character that is proficient in heavy armor, because that's just a big, it's such a big boost, you can't ignore it. You're never going to have, like, a 22 dex, so you might as well just get heavy armor, and then put three ranks in acrobatics. That is, like, (laughs) the thing that puts you over the line. Really? Three ranks in acrobatics changes your uh, total defense from plus four to plus six, to your uh, dodge bonus to your AC. Hmm. So whether you use acrobatics or not, whether it's a class skill or not, if you want to be a tank, dump three points in acrobatics and you will expand the range. You're going to have to have a good dex to begin with. A decent dex. You can't, well, you can't Will, have punted on dex. Sir Will has a 10 dex. Okay, yeah. So. Maybe a 12. Okay. You know, but it's not a 7. Yeah, so sure. it's not fully punted. It's not fully punted. You're making me think of a great player tip. Is I think a lot of new players think I can attack. If I'm a melee person, I can cast... Spells if I'm a caster. It's a really good thing as you get more uh, into the game to look up all these other things you can do, like total defense, faint, disarm, reposition. There's a bunch of Counterspell. Counterspell. Yeah. You You should be looking these things up. We have been playing for six, seven years at this point, and never once has anyone done a counterspell. Right. You know, and that's a great thing to do to like, no one has ever roll the check to see what that spell was that someone cast. I don't think we've ever yeah, because, done that. Well, because we always know as players what it is for the most part. Sure. And so we just kind of metagame it away and we're not doing counterspells so we don't make the rolls. But I, I do think that's a really interesting part of the game that we never explore. Yeah, unfortunately. all that stuff. I know you're not a big combat maneuver guy, but there's a lot of things you can do with your standard action or full attack action besides attack and cast spells. Look that stuff up and try peppering it into your next session. Just say, by the end of the session, I want to try a disarm once. Right. And it also will help you to not be a one-trick pony. Yeah. Which we've talked about before. It'll help you to to, yeah, pepper in a little variety in your rounds beyond just, oh, I'm going to cast not a combat spell or, well, you know, that, and that's the other build that's kind of neat that I've, I've never tried is just a straight buffer, like a real bard that is not based on dealing damage or anything, but is just based on only kind of buffing teammates. Yeah. That's another neat uh, area to explore where you don't do any damage and you don't tank, but you do something that a lot of people don't necessarily think of when they're first building a character. That's my character in Curse. 
Yes. Completely useless with this bow. Uh, and you build that into the character. The yeah. character's like, anything we can do to avoid a fight would be best. You know? <laughs> because you know if it comes down to it, you're not going to be able to fight. You know, I never used reposition before until the Omast From uh, right. episode. Yeah, that's right. And, now, and I still haven't used it since. <laughs> But it's a lot of fun. It sure is. It sure is, good buddy. Looking forward to the end of the episode where we have this vision, right? right? Uh, Or Sir Will has a vision, at least, of the hall as it was. Is this something that you kind of made up? Or is this something that you can get, you can glean from the backstory as written in the adventure? Uh, I'm not going to fully answer that. But I will say that it's very important to both the uh, overarching story uh, as well as the personal journey of Sir Will and yeah. all these people that are uh, allegedly tied to these fallen uh, heroes of Minderhall. Yeah, I I like the the pull there, the the temptation that having his brother, the vision of his brother presents for him. Mm-hmm. It's very it's fun for me to work with as a player to kind of see where where I want that to go, but. I did have kind of a hard time. And I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm I'm having a little bit of a hard time wrapping my head around Rosette, based on what she said as part of her psych up prayer that got everybody all juiced. Right. Like, like what is the philosophy here? Or I guess the theology here behind Rosag or Minderhall. Rosag is a follower of Minderhall. Because it seemed like she was like this and that and this and that and this and that. And they were all kind of like opposed or opposites to each other. And yeah. then f- finishes it with make and unmake, you know, death and life. This and, and so I'm kind of having a hard time zeroing in on like if they have a message. What's the elevator pitch for <laughs> Minderhall's religion? Sure. And I'm, I want Sir Will to struggle with the same thing. Yeah. And it goes back to when Atena was talking to you guys. And, and Baron, remember Baron's realization? Like I... I was raised on Torag. I've only thought about the power to make. I never thought about using the, you know, the hammer or or use uh, metallurgy or engineering to unmake the power of unmaking. And and so that is what made Baron think like, hmm, maybe this Minderhall, although evil, may have some interesting ideas. And because so, you could unmake something that's evil, right? Right. I mean, theoretically, you know, having both sides, I think, is an interesting. Uh, concept for all I want all four of you and Umlo to to try and grasp this idea so if you are sort of tempted towards Minder Hall that there's a real reason there that like it's just opening up your perspective you know Shailen is all about beauty you know Mm -hmm. it's pretty much Beauty, 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 art, literature, song, the you know, all, all that stuff. Whereas uh, Iomadai, what would you say Iomadai? Iomadai. Iomadai is all about, what would you say, strength? Justice. Justice. Yeah. You know, they're all pretty much one-sided things for the yeah. most part. And now you've got this other evil deity that is saying, that is trying to show the importance of both sides hmm. in, of the equation, the, the black and the white. Um, the yin and the yang. The yin and the yang. And I, I don't know. If, if anything, I just want it to make the decisions harder for you, Sir Will, and for everyone, uh, whether <laughs> yeah. or not they're going to right. Because if she's falling. holding right. Because if she's holding up that plate and going like, kill everyone alive. Right. It's like, well, that's an easy, that's a no-brainer. You know, but when it's a little obfuscated, right? It's a little yeah. confusing. You're like, well, maybe there is something here. And, it, you know, it, it, it put, plants the seeds of doubt. Uh, which is interesting. Yeah, and you know, Atena made it pretty clear. If you want to save your brother, you must yeah. choose the path of Minderhall. And then in this vision, you see him calling out your name. Yeah. So what is Sir Will going to do? That's certainly the elevator pitch for Will. Yeah. It's like, if you want to save your brother, you got to do this. Well, we end up uh, rolling into episode 118 now. This is our first ever cannon fodder where we're covering two episodes. 
This one really stood out for me personally as a just one of the most tense episodes that we've had in yeah. a long time. Harkens back to the Spire Drake. Was it the Spire Drake? Which was the Drake that almost Rift killed Drake. it? The Rift Drake. Yeah, that the two-parter. Rift, yeah, the Rift Drake two-parter. And in that case, I don't know, it felt different than this one, where this one, it really kind of felt like it was us against you. And there was yeah. a lot of tension at the table. There was a lot of anger at the table. And I just want to kind of address some of those things and ask you a few questions about your decisions in this particular episode. So starting from the top. Yes. Well, and it's actually really starting from the end of 117. You bring this creature to us. Yes. And it, why? Why bring the creature to us? You know where the creature is uh, patrolling, right? Mm-hmm. We've already seen it. We, we sensed it. As a GM, when it's debatable whether, to, whether a given creature can or cannot hear the party or see the party, how do you decide if it leaves to attack the party or stays where it is in, written to be? Uh, for example, a situation where also weighing in if you just want the PCs to have this encounter or not, (laughs) or, you know what I mean? Like, how do you balance all that and what, you know, in general, and then why this decision at this time? Sure. Um, I mean, I could easily just wait for you guys to walk into that treasure room and you knew that there was a a creature in there because Baron had seen it uh, up in the ceiling uh, and then have the encounter there and give you guys the jump. Uh, That certainly wouldn't have been fun, but that wasn't why I did it. My idea was when you guys came into the Great Hall, the Chul became aware of you. And then as you came up to that room with the treasure, it went and hid. Now, that's where Baron detected evil, detected the presence right, of something. Yes. You knew that that was the tool now right. going back, right? Um, so it, it went up there to hide. It obviously didn't do a good job of it because Baron was nailing his perception checks, nailing his... He kept he kept holding that cone of evil to determine how many, uh, you know, how many types of evil or how many different presences right, of evil. Right, right. Uh, so then he left. And then you guys went and had that marrow encounter. Well, that entire marrow encounter, the tool comes down trying to assess the prey out there as his friend or foe, sees you guys and waits for the opportunity to strike. That was pretty much, that's the mental So how did the Chul detect us? Did I, did I, did you just say that and I missed it or? When you came, when you came into the Great Hall, you know, it, 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 that was like its lair in that room with all the treasure and the fountain. So it could start feeling us at that time? Well, it could start seeing you. You guys fanned out into the room. Remember, you went towards the dais and Nestor and Della and Baron and Umlo were doing other things. Oh, it could see us. So I rolled perception checks for it. It's not like you guys were stealthing so much in the water. And. Right. I just, for some reason, I thought that it was like behind a wall somewhere farther away, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, no. misunderstood. I mean, it was like, definitely farther away, but the way you guys fanned out into the room, it saw, okay, who are these guys? Watched you, went up and hid as you got closer to got it. Got it. Okay. And now it was waiting for its time to strike. So let the marrows do their damage and then attack. Yeah. Not unlike Brander. Right. Well, what about when you do have a, a, an opponent, you want the PCs to fight and they're in a room that the PCs are not exploring? What are some ways that you can either, do you justify it by rolling some die? Do you not roll die and just do whatever you want? Or do you have them skip that encounter because they never went into that room? What's generally your policy as a GM? When I started GMing, I would just try to force them into that room or, you know, coerce them. You might want to, you guys sure you don't want to check out that room over there? (laughs) Um, But now, and and I've spoke about this before on the FOD, is that I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to let encounters go. Now, if it's a really cool encounter, then I'll move it. For example, the Peritons that you guys fought, they're not located there in the valley. Did I mention that? Yeah, on you, yeah, you did. But I was like, this is so much better than more cave giants. I really want you to fight that. So I just replaced it. And that's one thing you can do. Like, 
If you want them to fight a creature that you know they're never going to come across because they went, you know, left instead of right, right. just you can move it later. You don't want necessarily add it in and make the encounter harder, but just find a way to make you mean it. Add work. it into another encounter. Add it in an- or you don't replace do another encounter. Right. You replace. Know? Yeah. yeah. Especially if, you know, a lot of these adventure paths, sometimes you're fight you're fighting uh groups of the same enemies over and over again. Well if you know they're not gonna go to fight this other thing, have them just change one of those encounters to bring that in just to add some variety. Yeah, I think that that's a good policy as a GM to kind of focus on not just doing the things that you want to do or that you think that the player should experience. Right. That is something you definitely get caught up with when you're a new GM. Mm-hmm. And it's not that it's wrong per se, but I think that if you discipline yourself to not bring the creature out in that situation, you're disciplining yourself across a, a lot of different areas in which you don't affect the game outside of what the players trigger. Right. You just want to get into that discipline. Like, even if you don't like what's happening or even what's happening is not perfectly in your plan, letting them trigger only the things they trigger and then maybe moving things around or whatever sure, sure. Uh, will put you in a better a better position down the line to make those players really feel like only what they do is af- affecting the story. Yeah. It's a purer feel to the game. It's a good practice uh, to really try to hold yourself to as a GM because the more you do it, the better you'll become at it. And it actually makes your job easier at the end of the day because you're just reacting and not like trying to throw stuff at them just because you think it's cool. Right. Do you think, since we were able to do two episodes in one here, let me just kind of connect two two ideas. Uh In retrospect, were you consciously or maybe even subconsciously attacking uh, will with the marrows over and over again uh, because you knew that this <laughs> combat was coming like you knew how bad this was going to be uh-huh. so do you think that there was a chance you were easing off the gas pedal a little bit because you knew what was next uh, maybe maybe a little bit oh, uh, yeah. you know, I certainly don't think it would have been as fun if everybody goes into that chul encounter at 10 hit points sure you know I liked breaking you down one by one and giving you every opportunity to, to succeed against something that I knew was going to be really tough. And I'm always nervous, and I said this before. So that's another thing. This Five-on-one encounters. This um, did not surprise you, the, like the, how hard this was. Um, you kind of knew that, that we Well, were... I was just saying, like, I, I, sometimes I'm nervous on five-on-one encounters. I was nervous about Lockmore. You know, splitting the party helped that out a lot. But I'm, I'm nervous. A Chul, I, I know this is a tough creature. You know, this is a CR7 encounter, but that's not... You guys usually make light work of a CR7. Um, wow, that sounds low. Well, it was underwater. Underwater. You usually CR7 not, underwater yeah. probably boosted it to a CR9. <laughs> right. Uh, CR10, even. Um, Especially with our party makeup. Not a lot of casters, not a lot of... Uh, Piercing weapons. I was really ready to take somebody out. You know, I really wanted to. Well, clearly. (laughs) But I was, you know, you got to let the dice roll where they do. And, uh, you know, obviously I I was being extra um, strict. I wasn't letting you guys get anything from the bottle cap to the smite evil. Because I really wanted to raise the stakes of this encounter. And And you think think the reason for that is because it was a CR7 Creature is you're like you guys shouldn't get any breaks. If you're having a hard time with this, that's your own fault. This is a CR seven creature. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. Well, let me ask you just from a metagame perspective, taking it out of the story for a second. Uh-huh. As I said, the show was really tense. I mean, there were things that were cut out of the show that were just violent anger uh, <laughs> against you that were just inappropriate, not appropriate for all audiences. Yeah. As a GM, how do you stand against that sort of tide? Like when when it feels as if the players are all actually 
actually legitimately pissed off about the decisions you're making, but you know in your gut they're the right decisions, what do you do? Like, how exactly do you stand your ground? When do you give in? You know, how far is too far? Mm-hmm. This is kind of a tough thing. I think I've dealt with this as a GM, and I don't really quite know the answer. I wonder if you do. It's it's very, very difficult. Like, obviously, you know best. The GM, I think, always knows best because you have the benefit of foresight. You know what's coming. Right. You know how many hit points that creature has left. You know that they're going to automatically pass this brutal save. You know that kind of stuff. So one thing is really building up a trust between you and your players. But you even said, we cut out a lot of stuff of people being really angry. It's not like you guys don't trust me. But in, in instances like this, when the shit hits the fan... You, well, I mean, there you lose that trust. There's definitely things that could go both ways. And the, the bottle cap is the perfect example of something that is outside of the game entirely, right. outside of the mechanics <laughs> entirely, and is just a jerk move. <laughs> and uh, so and let me ask you that specifically. Why right. that? Why that decision? I think it was entertaining. Uh, <laughs> it certainly I was. I thought it was hilarious, you know, because also... So it, that decision you made because you thought it was funny. I thought it was funny and, you know, it was just building up this tension in the room. which Feeding it more. Yeah, and like you're asking me, what do you do when the players are, are all angry at you? Sometimes I think that's good because now it really feels like I am the chul. Right. And so you guys are rolling tense and it gets you all, you're standing out of your chair, you're trying to really get into it. So sometimes it's okay to do that. And then you guys win. And I'm like, see, it wasn't so bad. Right. Um, but yeah, doing that to, to Grant, you're, for you're one, f- I don't remember the bottle cap, you know? Yeah, and number yeah. two, bring your bottle caps to the session, bro. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were just throwing fuel on the fire. And yeah. I wonder if that in some ways is a strategy. Instead of backing down, where not only do you put a little bit of power in the player's hands there, but you also show a little weakness as a GM. Mm-hmm throwing more fuel on the fire making it even worse in some cases now if you don't if you have players who don't you don't really know and who could literally walk out of the game right right that's a tough line like you got to make sure you're not crossing that line but sometimes pushing it even farther makes it very clear that they are not going to get a break. So stop asking and don't wonder about it anymore. Yeah. You have to survive on only your die rolls, your wits, and your character numbers. That's it. That's all you have. Yeah. I'm not going to give you a hand. I think it's interesting. And it, to harken back to what you just said uh, a minute ago, there is, I, I'm for some reason, it, it just pops into my head, a, a reference in, did you ever see the movie Miracle, the Disney movie about the 1980 U.S. Olympic team, the hockey team? I Olympic have hockey. never seen a Disney movie. <laughs> that makes sense. I think I saw part of The Lion King. Well, there may be Mary Poppins when I was a kid. That's th- it. There is an element in that that is very like the coach is really, really, really hard on them, like really hard. And they're college kids, really, really hard. And I mean, they're they hate him. They hate him. And right. his whole thing. And like he has his assistant coaches coming to him and saying, you, I mean, you got to ease off a little bit. Like, we're really, we're almost hurting these kids. Like, you got to, you know, put the brakes. And he's just like, if they have, if they all hate me, then they don't have time to hate each other. You know, mm. it's like, you're just taking everything. You're focusing all of their hatred on you. Well, it's banding your players together sure. as players, as a unit, you know, and there's something to be said for that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for the most part, you guys have had an easy go lately, and I knew this was going to be a tough encounter, and I wanted you guys to feel the tension. I don't want three rounds in for you, to be, for you Joe, to be like, well, Nestor's just going to crit this guy in a couple rounds, take him out with 60 points of damage. I want you guys to fight for your lives. You know, now, every encounter doesn't have to be that way, but from time to time, 
you guys should feel that tension. And if I have to be a little bit more of an asshole to make that tension happen, then I'll do it because it's not only great for the audience, but it's great for you guys at the table to feel like you're in that scene. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about one that is not quite as arbitrary as the bottle cap. Sir Will's Smite Evil. Uh Uh-huh. Is this a decision, just out of curiosity, that you had made before this combat or before it ever came up? And, I mean, in this situation where I asked for it, that was your get-out-of-jail-free card. That was your, Mm -hmm. like, give the players something that is completely reasonable, get them out of this, and look like the good guy to the whole listening audience. Sure. Right? Why say no is it because you had already decided before to say no or did you just say i'm gonna keep throwing fuel on the fire uh both i mean i I knew that i didn't want to give you smite evil uh, back yet um but there was no way even if i was like you know what it's just smite evil it's like a first level power it's not the end of the world i could just give it here no that's not what i was building to okay there will be a break when the fight is over and if the chul is dead or one of you guys is dead i don't care this is the this is the encounter that we're running right now gotcha so pretty much whatever you guys were going to ask for you weren't going to get it (laughs) You made that clear, including even after the combat was over. Little demon's blood for Della. No no deal. No dice. No dice. Why that? Eh. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck it. Eh, why? It's not important. You know, I I it's a it's it's one of those self-preservation things. Like when Baron, when everyone's dying and Baron uses two cure light wounds on himself. <laughs> right? It's like, guys, relax with the healing. You know, you're, you're going to be fine. I know what's coming up. And plus, it also sounds ridiculous to drink demon's blood underwater. Although I, I think there are articles out there that would prove me wrong. I was just like, nah. You know what? Nah. Nah. <laughs> okay. All right. So your reasoning on that one is Nah. Nah. <laughs> Got it, got it. Well, shortly after that little last and final fuel on the fire of hatred that that you were building, uh, we get out of the temple, and it is over. The underwater adventure is over. It is, what, less than than an hour and a half, basically, of game time that we're down there. And we get the prayer, get what we need, and get out of there. Uh, it seemed like such a daunting task, and obviously this episode showed how hard it was at, at the end of it, but it's past us now, which is yeah. nice. I mean, there's, uh, you know, literally a breath of fresh air. Yeah. And, and Le- but Lexington is dead. He's dead. He's officially <laughs> dead. <laughs> you do end it on a light note, though, right, so right. that's good. You know, for a tough episode, kind of ended on a light note, and uh, now now we'll have to see... On to the next, I think we have three of the four pieces of the puzzle, right? Uh, as far as you know, yeah. Yeah, so I think it's on to the last one. Where the hell do you go next? Uh, some, I don't know, somewhere 30 or 40 miles away. That's all I know. <laughs> as the crow flies? <laughs> as, yeah, as the crow flies. <laughs> Much more difficult. All right, I am going to move on okay. to this contest, which I am excited about talking about. I think I think this is going to be a record for us for how quickly we've turned around a contest. It's only been two weeks, and we are ready to announce winners and talk about what people submitted. And We got a ton of submissions, so yeah, why not just pull it out? We got a ton of submissions, and I do want to just highlight a few and answer the questions. So what we did was we threw out a natural attack debate, right? The main questions were, if you are readying an action to attack a creature and it has reach, and if that reach is like a bite, something where obviously its head or its face or its mouth is coming into range to hit you, isn't that coming into range? That's the gar fight. This all came up because this of the all gar. came up with the gar, for, because of the gar fight. Does that trigger your ready to action? And then furthermore, uh, another question we had was: if you are a very large creature and you're grappling someone. Do, do you move the creature or do they stay at that reach of, of kind of where you grappled them at reach? Um, 
And we got a lot of responses. And it turned out that there it's not really much of a debate. It's a pretty there are some pretty clear answers that we did not know. So and wait, you're telling me that Pathfinder had an answer for these very specific questions? Well not surprised. Yes and no. I mean, yes, but they didn't answer that specific question. But okay. if you put together all of the clues, right, all of these little things, if you draw on their other elements, you end up with a result of you pretty much have to rule legally that no, and I think we were right on the show. You ruled no, you do not get an attack of opportunity. So it's coming, it's like exactly. snapping in and out. Snapping in and out, right, is is, is the idea. Well, uh, anybody who, who talked uh, competently about this and sent us some links to examples and really went into detail about everything was added in for the drawing for this contest, and you would have gotten an email from me. There were about 18, 17 or 18 people at the end that submitted things that where we really learned something. And a couple of those that are in this hat right now thought that you should have gotten the attack and did not cite actual rules, ah. but instead, those actual rules, but cited other rules and kind of made arguments for, for that case. And I thought they were good and interesting arguments. So you're, you guys are in the mix as well. So you were but, generous in your uh, accepting. No, no, I wouldn't say so. The, no? the details of the contest were not, there is not a right or wrong answer, even right, though there right. kind of was. The details <laughs> of the contest were, if you give us something to go, hmm, that's interesting, then, you know, you're in. Okay. okay, that's what it was, and uh, and in this case, you know, there were there were plenty of good examples, but I just wanted to highlight a a few, um, and, and these are things that I think you don't know because you didn't read any of these emails. I did not. Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna educate you for a second here. Educate me, Joe. So uh, you know, a lot of people said this, but I'm just gonna point out this one. This is from Thomas Poynton, who wrote a really long email that was great because not only did it bring up uh, the feet strike back which most people brought up. Uh, and if you brought that feed up, you were you were entered in, into the mix. Can I just say, that's a great way sometimes when you're trying to figure out a rule is find a feat that doesn't necessarily clarify the rule, but it clarifies in its language something that allows you to infer that you can't do what you thought you could do. Does right. that make sense? Yep. So strike back. You can strike at foes that attack you using their superior reach by targeting their limbs or weapons as they come at you. There you go. This is a feat from the core rulebook. Strike back. Guess the base attack bonus for it. So like what level you have to be to get it. I'm going to say plus seven. Plus 11. Plus 11 to get strike back. This is a late game feat too. So apparently they're saying it is very powerful to be able to ready an action to hit a limb or a weapon. So you can actually like ready a sunder. If you're playing someone with a powerful reach That's weapon. That's cool. Yeah, pretty, pretty cool. Um, Keep that in mind for those of you that live to book four or five, wherever that, whatever 11 is. <laughs> right. Uh, then Thomas also went on to go into detail about the grab ability, which the Gar also has. Right. The grab ability for a creature. Now, I don't know how long it's been since you've read this, but you have never mentioned this to me. So The automatic plus four that you get to the CMB? Uh, no. So the <laughs> when you do this, you do not uh, provoke an attack of opportunity, right. which was a mistake in our wording of the contest. Guys, it was a convoluted cannon fodder contest. This is what happens. We kept There were a couple times where we referred to the attack as an attack of opportunity as opposed to a readied action. Right, right. Two very different things. Uh, you never get an attack of opportunity in these cases. And it says specifically in the grab ability, you do not get an attack of opportunity. Right. The creature has the option to conduct the grapple normally or simply use the part of its body it used in the grab. So when you claw someone and grab them, you have to use your whole body to do that. You can't just grab them with the claw. So, correction. 
you can just grab them with the claw. But if you choose to do that, it takes a minus 20 penalty on its CMB check to make and maintain the grapple, but does not gain the grappled condition itself. Right. So basically that just means you can do it if you don't want to have the grapple condition, but it's a minus 20 to do so. Right. It still but, means it's just a matter of if you want the grapple condition or not. You yeah. never, I never read that because I never want to take the minus 20. Yeah, but you've also been like, oh, no, he's got him grappled in this one hand and he's hitting, you know, like attacking with this other hand. You can still do that. It's just at a minus two. <clears throat> but you have the grapple because you have the grapple condition. So I can attack with the claw, grab. Gotcha. And now it's minus two to do the other gra- the other claw, bite, and whatever. I just can't use that claw. But if I want to continue to use that claw, then I take the minus 20 and I'm not grappled. Gotcha. I, I don't know. I just feel like... I feel like if you're, you have to use your whole body to maintain the grapple. Like, I, I don't know. And like, I know you can make attacks, but like at a minus two with the grappled condition. I don't, but again, looking at New just contest. this rule, <laughs> but just looking at the way this rule is worded. Sure. It seems to say if you have a claw and you want to hold it in the claw and not anything else, then you take this minus 20. If you're not taking the minus 20, it seems to imply to me that you're using your body for the grapple. But. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah. your way does make sense, but I never knew that I, rule. Yeah, I play it my way, but it's it's certainly something to remember. I just like the way Thomas sort of ended it up, which was these collective rules definitively show that what was done in the episode was correct and by the book. You know, very I like lawyerly, them already. Yeah, exactly. Very <laughs> lawyerly sort of way to uh, way to put it. So uh, I'm going to highlight a couple other ones here. Uh, A.J. Lipinski writes in, and he addresses the Grant's readied action, which was to shoot the creature when it came within a, a, a closer increment to his crossbow right. because he didn't want to take the penalty for shooting farther away. And... Uh, we were wondering, does the creature physically come closer to Nestor during that bite? Right. And by the rules, it, he just doesn't technically in terms of being able to be attacked, right? So that's what it's we're going to so say. so fast. That. Yeah. Well, AJ added this little neat wrinkle. Rules as written, however, none of this matters because none of this will accomplish what Grant wanted to do by readying his action, which was shoot it when it got closer in order to reduce its penalty to hit. The readied action under the condition he set forth would not accomplish that goal if it triggered, thanks to this little line here. This is from the rules. The readied action occurs just before the action that triggers it. So Baron's readied action would trigger before the move action that the guard took to get into melee range, completely defeating the purpose of readying the action for him to be closer to not take as much of a penalty Mm. at the shot. Mm. So that was kind of an interesting additional wrinkle that I've read before but never put together in that in that situation. That's cool. Also wanted to mention a neat point brought up by Rob Day, longtime fan of the show, Rob Day, who wrote in and brought up called shots, which is not part of the core rules. It's from Ultimate Combat. Yeah. But it, so saying like, I want to wait until it's, ma- I want to attack its mouth. And there's rules for that in sure. Ultimate Combat. But uh, called shot is a full round action. Ah, and you can never ready a full round, round action. action. Right. So that's another neat little little thing. That's so cool. And yeah, I guess I should just kind of add on that, yeah, across the board, pretty much everybody, we did never, I guess we forgot about it. It's right in the grapple rules. It says, you pull it adjacent to you. So ah, okay. so actually, Nestor should have come right adjacent to the creature once he was grappled and, and in the gar's mouth. Right. Uh, somebody else, I can't remember who it was, I didn't print it out, but also included a picture of a gar. And the gars have 
exceedingly long mouths that are very yeah. far from their head. Like bottlenose. Yeah, exactly. Very far from their head. So I think that's the reason for uh, for that reach. Uh, and then I just want to add on one more. Jim Carraher uh, added in a, mentioned a rule that I, I guess I forgot or didn't realize. The one possible exception is the fact that you can take a five-foot step as part of a readied action if you did not otherwise move during that round. Interesting. Core rulebook, rulebook, page 203. Depending on the wording of your readied action, you might be allowed to step forward and attack when a creature comes within 10 feet of you. Oh, interesting. I never knew that. Yeah, yeah. You learn something new every day. Learn something new every day. (laughs) Well, guys, thank you so much for all of your submissions. Really, really appreciate it here. Uh, I, I have a, a, a bag full of names. There's a lot of names in there. Uh, there, is, there is a lot of names in there. I wonder what are the odds that we'll pick one of the people whose things we just read. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I wonder. I wonder. Uh, all right, Troy, you, you do the honors. All Go right, ahead. we got to get it up to the mic. So can you hear that, folks? Oh, ooh, there's a lot in there. <laughs> Why is it wet? <laughs> all right, I've got two in my hand. I'm going to just pull out this one. Okay. Okay. The winner of a signed yes. pocket Advanced Player's Guide is... Oh boy, of course it's going to be a tough one to pronounce. I apologize in advance. Jang Skirata. Jang Skirata. Congratulations. Skirata. Skirata. Congratulations. I think we nailed it. Jang Skirata. Jang Skirata. Congrats. You are an advanced player. And our next contest is, did we pronounce that name correctly? (laughs) Uh, Write in, let us know. (laughs) There's only one winner. Jang. <laughs> Could be only one definite winner. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> All right. We're going long this fod, buddy. I haven't heard this song in a while. Yeah, been, yeah, it's been a couple weeks. Nice to have him back. I need some more coffee. <laughs> Thank you, Nick Lowe. It is always a pleasure to hear the... the Beautiful sounds. Nick, I love you. Uh, All right. This one's coming in from Michelle from Mount Lake Terrace, Washington, who writes in about, this is going to be, I think, a quick one. Uh, We could kind of get into it, but I don't think either of us know enough to get really into it. Okay. She is, her group is switching from strange eons to Curse of the Crimson Throne. Ah. It's not really doing it for them anymore. Okay. Not sure. Not sure what what happened. Maybe the horror thing. I don't know. It's tough. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Yeah, maybe, maybe they're not using the right music. It's all about the the Sirens game. (laughs) So uh, they're going to move over to Curse of the Crimson Throne. Okay. And they had this idea. They're going to do an all-vigilante party. (laughs) Obviously, backstories and motivations will be different for everyone, but what is your opinion of the viability of such a party? Mm. Can it work, or are we dooming ourselves to failure? That's a good one. It I've is. thought about this before, Michelle, my bell. I've always wondered about doing uh, you know, an adventure where the entire party starts off all with the same class, a class of all barbarians, a class of all fighters or whatever. Um, I think it can work. Uh, I think the easiest way for it to work, and I use that word uh, lightly, is if it's second level, everyone goes in their own direction. So you start off with vigilante, and that second level, everybody multi-classes. Or one person stays vigilante, uh, and then everybody else goes off in another way because you're going to need a more balanced party. I would say there's... Well, and it also doesn't have to happen at second level. Sure. You could also mix up multi-classes. Yeah, a couple there. people could multi, a couple people could stay vigilante. What if they're all base vigilante and then once 
a cleric vigilante and one's a fighter vigilante. Yeah, what are you going to do when you need a caster? What are you going to do when you need healing? What are you going to do? I mean, you guys know now how hard it is without a dedicated healer. I mean, you're going to have to vary it up. I don't think a a party of all vigilantes can survive to second level. Oh. I want an update on that, Michelle. I mean, if you're playing... (laughs) Oh, so you think it's not a good idea. You think it's not a viable idea. I think it's a really fun idea. And I, I I wouldn't say it's a bad idea. I just say it's very difficult. And I think the best way to make it work is those who survive at second level... Start thinking about multi-classing. Well, I think that there is something to be said for the all-rogue party because there, rogues can deal a lot of damage and they can do a lot of other things outside of combat. Sure. So there is an interesting element there. I, I think you might be lacking on healing. Uh, you're certainly not lacking on damage output. You would have an immense amount of damage output with yeah, that party yeah. because of the, uh, the the acrobatics role that they can do. And like as a swift action, they can do damage. That is really cool. And if everybody's rolling through a square and it's like doing all kinds <laughs> of crazy superhero stuff. Yeah, exactly. Flanking constantly. Yeah. It would be it would be really fun. You could probably burn through a lot of stuff. The other thing that may make it viable, and I haven't read enough for this, is that the vigilante represents a much more advanced class in the uh, in the evolution of Pathfinder, and in and it's kind of closer to what they're doing in Starfinder, mm-hmm. and so you see a lot more options for abilities that you get at certain levels and you pick one of these many abilities. Right. So you can make vigilantes that are all very different in how they operate. Sure. And so that might work if you balanced all the things really well. I just don't know that there's any that are like heal or, you know, heal yourself. The other thing that might make it viable is that they all have really good social mechanics as well. Oh, yeah. So that, you know... That's great for Curse. For an urban adventure, that Mm -hmm. can really go a long way. So I don't know is is the real answer. I think that it could be viable, um, but I I do think it's more likely than not that you're going to lose somebody or you're going to move on to something else after a little while. But keep us posted. Oh, please keep us posted. I'm more impressed that everyone's down for it. Because usually everybody's like, no, no, I really want to be a wizard. No, I really want to be a fighter. The fact that everyone's down, that sounds like a fun group. I've always wanted Troy to do an all-cavalier party. (laughs) Good luck getting that group together. (laughs) Well, yeah, you'd have to get a bunch of nice guys together, which is almost impossible to find. That'd probably be good for Iron Fang Invasion. Yeah, that, that know, yeah. With, with, what, with what little I know like a, about like that. a unit of knights that all, all carry yeah. the same banner, all mounted, that and they have a bunch so of teamwork cool. feats. You know, dude, I you know, and I wish I knew it off the top of my head. The next adventure that's coming out after Ruins of Aslan is is, is supposed to be Return this, of the Rune Lords. No, no, there's one coming out before that. It's oh. like a. Uh, Game of Thrones type oh, that's thing with right. different houses yes, and whatnot. Maybe that would work well uh, with the All Cavalier Party. Yeah, that would be. It's called War for the Crown. <laughs> you just looked it up. I just looked it up. I mean, and the picture has like a Jon Snow looking dude dropping a mask on the ground and a mounted knight on a horse. A mounted knight on a horse. See? War for the Crown. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our next question. Then we got to get out of here. Okay. This one comes in from Matt from London. Matty. 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 Oh, top of the morning to you. <laughs> You're such a buffoon. Uh, Matt, I apologize for my co-host here. Okay, so uh, his question, I don't know if I want to give too much background on this. But you can say, I don't know if I want to read it. You know what? Let's just do it next week. No. Uh, he says, basically, he's playing Hell's Vengeance. I don't want to get too into the specifics of the question he's wrestling with. Sure. Uh, but in short, his question is, how do you navigate the controversial choices which you believe your PC would definitely make so far as to not wrongfoot other players and the attentions they had for their own PCs? 
Better yet, is it even worth talking about? So the, the, the heart of his question is something that you and I have talked about and something that I've struggled with a little bit recently with Sir Will, which is if you want to make choices that you know are going to affect the other players greatly, uh, or at least maybe not greatly, but to some degree, and it might put them off of what either what they were planning or with their future for their PCs, mm-hmm. do you talk to the player about that outside of the game and see if they would be interested in doing it or approaching something like that? Or do you not give them a heads up and spring it on them because that's where you get the purest reactions. Mm. That's where you get you get a less scripted game. That's where you don't feel like you're kind of like cheesily writing your story and it's it's happening like it would for their character. Yeah. Um it's a tough question and I just wonder where you stand on it as a as a player, not as a GM this time. If you had a, a decision that you wanted to make as a PC that you know some other PCs might not like, how do you approach that decision? Uh, I think there's a way, and, and now I'm knowing from experience, I think the, the best way to go about it is to talk to the player. But how how much you tell the player is up to you. I think you can vaguely, uh, you know, have the two players meet outside or talk via email, vaguely describe what you're thinking and gauge their reaction. What if you, what do you think about me doing this with your character? Because if you do it live in the, and the other person isn't into it, it can really like derail the thing, because then you have to decide. Well, maybe I should just let this go. But or, then you've already started. But then on you already something. started it. Yeah. yeah. So I think you're better off. And this is only from now years of experience uh, talking to the other player. And and if you don't want to tell them because you want that surprise element, like just try to vaguely gauge their reaction. Like, well, what would you think about my character doing something like this with your character? Is that something you're interested in, or should I forget it, or find somebody else to do it with? I, I think that that's perfectly fine and the best way to go about it. Yeah, I I'm not sure. I can't really agree or disagree. It's hard. It's yeah. it's really hard because I do really see a good argument for not preparing the player if it's someone that you know and trust and you've played with for for mm-hmm. a long time. Um, and it, you know it's tough because not throwing the other players off kilter is playing too safe. Yeah. You definitely don't want to make your decision based on that. Right. You don't want to say, you know what, I'm not going to say anything to them, and I'm not going to do it. Because I know it's going to foul up the game a little bit. I want to play a safe game. Like, no, that's not how you get great memorable story. Great right. memorable story is usually drawn from when you throw a wrench in the machine mm-hmm. as a player and you see how everybody reacts to it. And that's the same thing as a GM. If you're just safe with the players all the time, you don't get the same kind of memories of the events, the the, the epic feeling of overcoming. You know, See the tool fight. Exactly, exactly. See the tool fight. But I think that there is something to be said for talking to the player. I I think that I can can second the idea of maybe you can craft this message in some way that it's vague enough that they won't know exactly what you're talking about. Mm. But you could, I I said this a lot this episode, but plant a seed, uh, try to gauge their reaction. Or if there's a way that you could uh, introduce this concept in gameplay with small subtle clues and see if anybody is picking up on it and maybe it's a build to whatever decision you're looking to make and you see if anybody tries to stop you in that path and if they do then you know that that is something that they wouldn't be interested in playing with um or they might flat out tell you like my character wants to stop you but i kind of want to see what happens yeah i don't know it's 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 hard i do see the value in not pre-planning it with other players but i certainly see the value in 
I, I will say flat out, I mean, not only in Giant Slayer, but in campaigns, in your Jade Regent campaign, I would I have talked to Skid outside of the campaign saying, I kind of want to do this with my character and your character, uh, something like this, you know, would you be interested? Or, you know, And every single time, Skid is like, yep, it doesn't matter what it is. He's right. like, yeah, and then maybe this, and maybe that. Like, okay, well, let's just see if it ever, a situation ever presents itself. Right. I'm, I'm, I'd be, I'm more the one to be like, nah. Yeah. <laughs> you just kind of want to do your own thing. But I was going to say, another thing you can do is use the GM as a go-between. Like, right. ask, tell the GM your idea. He can, he or she can help shape it and then go to the other person and present and it in a way. And present it as something completely unrelated to you or your character. Right, right. How would you feel if your character got put in a position like this, this, this? How would you react to that? Yeah, I, that's another. Obviously, a lot of these questions should go to your GM. That's usually the idea. Uh, and a GM should act kind of as an attorney for you in these situations where they don't reveal everything that you've said to them in confidence about your plans (laughs) for your character, but they do facilitate communication between the players about what kind of game they want to play and make sure that everybody to the best of their ability can stay interested, engaged, and happy. Yeah, and you know, this can apply to character creation as well. How many times have you sat around a session zero and uh, there's one person that's like, uh, why don't you and I be brothers? Our characters be brothers. A much better question is like, I kind of want to have a sibling. Is anyone interested in being a uh, like brother or sister to me? You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's if you say, "Hey, you want to be brothers?" and you're like, "You're," I'm sitting there like, "I have absolutely no interest." In it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it makes the other person feel bad. But then if you're like, "Hey, you, you, you could siblings? get guilted into something," right? Like yeah, because yeah. Skid will be like, "Yeah, let's do it." You know, Skid is sure. always like he wants to be helpful. Is anybody interested in a love story? Right. You know, is anybody interested in a? Uh, you know, a long ago event that, you know, we shared long ago and haven't seen each other in 10 years. Anybody interested in that kind of story you want to explore? And everybody's like, no, not really. Then, you know, sure, you can feel bad a little bit (laughs) that your idea didn't land, but the individual people don't feel guilted into saying yes. Right, right. It's kind of like, look, nobody's that into this, dude. You got to have to move on to the next idea. I'll tell you right now, I want to ask all of these questions before we start the Starfinder AP. I want to know the connections, if any, between these characters that are embarking on this adventure. I think asking those questions early on, uh, just throwing them out into the room, uh, helps you know, these other questions that this uh, gentleman from London is talking <laughs> Matt. about. <laughs> Old Matty. Old Matty. <laughs> Old Matty. <laughs> Top of the morning to you, Matt. Look at Big Ben. It's beautiful. Um, <laughs> we're so insulting. The lovely green hills of London. <laughs> the lovely. The peat. Oh, the peat. Um, but yeah, I think asking those questions early on kind of sets the stage for more dialogue later on. And then you don't maybe have to always use the GM if you've set up that precedent early on that like anything's on the table. Hey, why don't we do this? No, you're not feeling? Okay, cool. Hey, what about you? Are you interested in that? You know? Yeah. And pitching it as how does your character, how would your character feel about this? Or if someone did that, yeah. you know, as vague as you can keep it, but. Yeah, I think there's a couple options there, but I would definitely say don't shelve the idea just because you think people might not like it. Right. Definitely try to find a way to get it in. And then be embarrassed when it never takes off. Hey, we all make mistakes, man. <laughs> we all make mistakes. You got to throw shit against the wall sometimes, you're you right. know, when you're creating. You see what sticks, what doesn't, and not everything's going to be, as Skid said, spun gold that comes out of your mouth. It's not always like that, but, you know, occasionally when you take those risks... That's when you get the big rewards. Agreed. You know, you know, at the risk of sounding completely cliche. I already agreed with you. All right. I am going to uh, get out of here so you can have some coffee. And, ah, uh, great. <laughs> and thank you so much, as always, for you guys for writing in. 
Always write into us at glasscannonpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know your questions that you would like asked on Cannon Fodder. Episode 119 coming soon. Mm. Our first, it feels like a whole new world. Breathe in the air, good buddy. Breathe in the air. It is definitely going to be a whole new world. One piece of the pie left, maybe. What happens next? Can't wait. It's too bad you'll have to do it without Lexington. (laughs) 